Uh, will you pray with me one more time? Father God, we just want to come before you this morning again and, and thank you for the beautiful sunshine outside and thank you for an opportunity to gather. Um, Lord, in, uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to open your word and Lord, we pray that your spirit be uh, amongst it. Lord, words written thousands of years ago, uh, scripture says are alive because your spirit's in them. Lord, we pray that you speak to each of us this morning uh, with whatever we come through the doors with, that we can hear your voice and where you want to lead us. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. I'm excited about today. We're, we're moving into a new place in the book of Genesis. For the, book, for the year of 2023 so far, we've been slowly working our way through the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Um, we, uh, we have made it to chapter 11 at this particular point. Like chapter 12, I'm sorry, at this point. We're going to do 11 and 12 today a little bit. Uh, we, we, uh, like we did with the book of Matthew, we're breaking it down into little mini-series along the way. And so first little mini-series we looked at was, was uh, we just called Beginnings because we said uh, we, we emphasize things like where we start the story matters. Why, why go to Genesis? Well, because that's where Jesus keeps pointing us back to. It's the beginning of the whole story. It kind of sets the foundation of what we're going to talk about next. We move from there, and that's in, still in that series, to after we say where we start the story matters, we talked about how we view God matters. And so in the very first, first few chapters of the Bible already, we see that one God is big, way bigger than we are, creates the entirety of the universe, but is also incredibly intimate, where he molds and shapes us. How we view God matters, that he cares about us, that he's super powerful, yet close and intimate. Uh, we talked about how we can view God in different ways. We can view him like Zeus, right? Like an angry, vengeful God who likes to stand on a mountain and chuck a lightning bolt at you if you screw up too much. But we talked about how the Bible works really, really hard to show that the God of the Bible is not like Zeus at all. And how we view God shapes the way we read the rest of the story. From there, it moves into the, the, the statement that who you are matters, that you were created with value and significance, that you were created in the image of God, that you were created to flourish and live a life and life to the fullest, kind of like what Luigi just shared with us, that there's a fullness in the way that God wants us to live, and he wants to guide each of us into it, because no matter how bad we've messed things up, we still matter to him, and he wants to see us in, move into that kind of life. And then... Through the next mini-series, which was My Brother's Keeper, which were, where we talked about the responsibility we have to each other, to God, to ourselves. And for the last four weeks, it's been a little heavy because we've talked about the way we live matters. Not because it changes our value, not because our significance goes up or down if we do the right things or the wrong things. God says very clearly, you matter no matter what, but the things you do affect how you flourish as well. That we call it, in the, in, in the Christian community, we call that sin. Things that lead us away from the kind of flourishing that God desires. And God says throughout the beginning of the Bible that those things matter. That we want to try to work those things out of our lives so we can live a better kind of life. So Genesis 1 through 11 kind of sets the stage. It lays the foundation, actually, for the rest of Scripture, honestly. But today we move into a new mini-series mini focused on a guy named Abram later known as Abraham, same, same guy. Uh, we're going to look at how he lives a life that follows God and how that actually can apply into what we're looking at today. So to get into that, uh, turn with me if you've got a Bible or you can look at it at the screen to Genesis 11. We're going to start at verse 27, which begins the story of Abraham. So I'll read it and then we'll go back and talk about it. Genesis 11:27 says, This is the account of Terah, Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milak. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milak and Ishka. Sorry, those are tricky. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and his son Haran, and his da- the son of, of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife, of son, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And that's where we'll stop for this morning. So as we often do here, we need to set the stage a little bit. We're going to be talking about Abraham for the next little bit here, but we need to, cut, we, we need to set the stage on what we just read first, but also on the, who Abraham is altogether. Uh, there's some details in this particular part that are pretty easy to read over, because as you could even tell, as I was trying to read it, it's not the easiest little bit of the Bible to read. Whenever we get into the old names and different things like that, it can get confusing quickly. But there's some critically important things to understand, not even in chapter 12, but actually in chapter 11 before we get to chapter 12. They're critically important to understanding who Abraham is and why he's honored in the Bible and really throughout Jewish history. Abraham is one of the most important figures in the Bible. He's called the father of the nation of Israel. He's also considered to be the father of the nation of Islam, honestly. Um, both, he, he's, a, he's a critically important person to two major religions in the world. And we want to figure out why that is. In order to do that, we need to start with a genealogy, actually, with Abraham's dad, Terah. So in chapter, chapter 11 tells us a few things about Terah. First, it says that he has three sons, Abram, who becomes Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. We're also told... That tragically, one of Terah's sons, Haran, the father of Lot, who will come back up later in our story, dies early in his life. Clearly old enough to have a child, but clearly dies before his father, right? I can't even imagine a pain worse than losing a child. And we'll hold on to that because we'll actually come back to that in a little bit. But usually when we start the story, story of Abraham's calling, most of us would begin in chapter 12, which we read as well. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country because I'm going to give you these particular blessings. But did you notice that his journey towards Canaan doesn't actually start in chapter 12? In chapter 11:31, it says, Terah took his son Abram and they together set out to go to Canaan, which is interesting. I think to wrap our minds around this, a map is really helpful. So we can throw up the map, this map here. We have, we're talking about three different places in this story. So in the bottom right, you see the city of Ur, right? You are. It's in Chaldea. That's where Abraham is born. Uh, it's also the largest city in the nation of Mesopotamia at the time. Uh, that's where this journey starts. We're told that Abram and Terah leave Ur and go walk up to Haran, which is at the top there. And then uh, 
with the intention of coming down to the promised land or to Israel, which is over on the left there. So that's kind of the place that we're looking at here. Now you may be wondering, why in, why in the world would you go to Haran first before you go to the promised land? Because it seems to be a lot faster just to go straight across, right? But if you're familiar with that region at all, has anybody here ever been to Iraq? Nobody was in the army. Okay, that's the only... I figured most of you never vacationed to Iraq. That makes sense. <laughs> but I didn't know if a few of you had been in the army and gone there that way. If you had been to Iraq... Uh, you would realize it's not the place you go for vacation, particularly that part of Iraq, because that's what we're looking at in modern-day times, because it's the Arabian Desert. You don't go across that line right there because it's a harsh and brutal desert. So in particularly during the time of Abraham, your journey doesn't go through there, it goes around there, right? It's, it's sand, it's rock, it's dirt, there's no water, it's harsh, so, they, so you can't just cut across, so they actually have to go north first to come back down south. So that's kind of what we're looking at there. So, so, so Terah and Abram head out from Ur, headed for Canaan, but the Bible says they don't make it. It says they make it as far as Haran. <clears throat> and then it says, but when they make it there, Terah decides that he's going to settle there, that he's going to stop, that that's the end of his particular journey. Now, like I, said, like I said, those are often easy details for us to read over quickly. But I think something profoundly important is being communicated here. And actually, throughout the centuries, the rabbis have actually debated what has happened here. Why does Terah stop? Clearly, it says in Scripture that he was leaving Ur to go to Canaan, not to Haran. Haran is, 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 not, his, is not the destination that he meant to get to, but yet when he gets there, he decides to stop. And throughout the traditions, there actually are three possible explanations of why he stopped there. Two of which we're going to hit briefly, and I want to focus uh, for a longer period on the third one. First theory is that he's tired. We already mentioned he had to walk around the Arabian Desert, so he's traveled uh, from Ur to Haran, which is about 600 miles, right? And you're walking this 600 miles, a long walk, right? We also know he's older. His, we don't know how old at that time. We know how old he is when he dies. But we know he's old enough to have two adult sons who are married and as a grandchild. So he's, on the, he, he's not young anymore. And so he's gone a little, way, a little over halfway of his journey. So he's gone 600 miles from Ur to Haran, and there's another 400 left to get from Haran to, the, to Canaan at the time. It wasn't Israel yet, it was Canaan at that time. Just to kind of put that journey into perspective for us, it's, about almost, it's almost exactly 1,000 miles to travel from here in Grand Rapids to Orlando, Florida. So if you were to walk to Orlando, that kind of puts it in your mind to how far they have to go. So, he's, so again, he's a little bit older, so perhaps he's just tired. Actually, the name, um, the name of name Haran itself, this, of the city, means parched. So perhaps he stops because he's metaphorically parched. He's tired. That's possible. That's the first theory. The second theory is that he's sad, that he's hurting. It's mentioned, uh, we mentioned this earlier too, but we, Haran has lost a son, it's interesting just the fact that the, the son that he lost was also named Haran. There's just one fewer R, right? So the city of Haran usually is spelled with two R's. The name of his son is usually spelled with one, but it's pronounced the same way. Maybe that's on accident. Maybe the Bible is trying to tell us something there. Now, I've never lost 
a child. Um, but I can't imagine that it's not overwhelmingly devastating. I can't even try to, I can't even fathom it. I can't even try to wrap my heart or head around it. Perhaps he, perhaps he began a journey to walk away from the pain. I can't be an Ur anymore. And the journey becomes just too much. Leaving the land where his son was buried might be too much. It's possible he was emotionally parched from the loss of his son Haran, so he settles in Haran. That's theory number two. Now, actually, it's possible that both of those things are true, but what I want to explore today is the final theory. And I think there's a lot of evidence in the Bible to suggest that even if those other two are true, this one for sure, this one seems to be very likely. And that is that he's scared. See, Terah stays stays in Haran, but Abraham keeps going. And Abraham, throughout the Bible, is given big big praise uh, for that particular action, for that step that he takes, which I think actually speaks into the theory we're going to explore together in just a few minutes. In order for us to even wrap our minds around that theory, though, we need to get in the mindset of an ancient human. Now, one of the gifts that God gave to humanity is our ability to notice patterns. We can see things and connect them to one another. We're really, really good at it. Right? No other created thing in the, in the entire world can, can put patterns together, uh, at least not like humans do. Sure, there are things like dogs can make basic connections between things, right? If I sit, I get a treat. We even know things like the great apes or dolphins have some form of language, right? But humans are special in this particular area. So then, ancient humans, if we're putting ourselves in the mind of what Abraham was going through, notice certain patterns as well. One of the things they noticed fairly quickly was the regular rhythms of natural occurrences. So without electronics, without electricity, without entertainment, the things like we have today, you spend a lot of time just observing nature itself. You spend a lot of time looking at the sky. You see a lot of time, a lot of time noticing how these different, uh, focused on your crops, different rhythms that happen naturally in, in the world. We watch how the stars move in a regular pattern, how the seasons changed in a regular pattern. How the moon went through cycles, from a full moon to a new moon and back again. We noticed how that happens on a regular rhythm. We noticed that that cycle, the moon cycle in particular, was regular enough to start to map time. We could count on it. We noticed that the cycle of the moon happens about once a month, right? So as as ancient humans began to notice the cycle of the moon being on a regular rhythm, they also noticed that there was another natural cycle that had a regular monthly rhythm as well. As the moon went through its monthly rhythm, they recognized that women went through their monthly rhythm as well, unless that cycle was broken by the blessing of a child. If you ever look through ancient mythologies, often you'll see the sun god depicted as male. But in almost all ancient mythologies, the the moon was depicted as a woman because of this idea. So then, ancient humans figured these two things must be related to each other. The moon goddess then must also control fertility. Those patterns seem to parallel each other. So how is all of that related to our story today? 
Chuck, if we could throw the next map up, that would be really helpful. I know I put them in the wrong order, but do we have another map? Okay. Awesome. Sorry about that. It's lagging. Well, eventually another map will come up. <laughs> Maybe. I can do it with this one either way. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, the <clears throat> during this time, uh, the time of our story, during the story of Abraham here, the most powerful nation on the earth was a nation known as Mesopotamia. Maybe you've heard it before. It's where Hammurabi comes from with his code of laws, things like that. Now, the nation of, uh, of Mesopotamia at this per particular time was the largest one on earth, and it spanned from, nope, still don't have it up there. That's okay. Uh, it spanned from, you'll have to just picture it with me, it spanned from about uh, Ur in the south there, and uh oh Now we have no picture. So now you're going to have to use your mind picture. All right, try to remember the map we just had up. And we have Mesopotamia. So we have a, this, we have a replacement projector because if you weren't here last week, our projector broke. It's being fixed. This one's a rental. Uh, we'll hopefully get their other one back, and it works great. So that's where we're at right now, working through these things. This is fun stall. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> It's awesome when you have a large chunk of your message entirely related to the, a map and pictures, and I can't get it up there. But uh, anyway, so, there we go. Look at that. All right. So Mesopotamia, it, the, the borders of Mesopotamia on the south, uh, the, border, the southern border of Mesopotamia is right around where Ur is, right? It's at the bottom right there. Ur is the biggest and largest city in Mesopotamia at the time. Um, the, the Ur is also the home of the moon goddess, Nana, right? Uh, I, <clears throat> sorry, I, now I got to get all caught back up to where I was trying to go. For all you history buffs, Ur is actually located, like we said, in, in, uh, in, um, in present-day Iraq. And we've actually found the ruins of Nana's temple dedicated to her. Uh, they refer to it now as Big Nana's House. <laughs> like it. Uh, we actually have a picture of that as well. If we throw the ruins up there for me, Chuck, not that one, then that one. So we found this in 1920, which is a, uh, an old ziggurat uh, that was dedicated to the worship of the moon goddess Nana. Uh, one of the cool things, cool things, I guess, for history at least, for history purposes, is that in 1920 we found these ruins relatively well preserved. Uh, but then a, a, a guy who, who's not a good person but did a thing um, named Saddam Hussein decided to actually rebuild the ziggurat. So the picture that Chuck showed first, this one, uh, is actually what it looks like in present-day Iraq now. So he rebuilt the base of it. You can actually still see the ruins on top there, uh, but the bottom has been rebuilt. So that we can kind of get a picture of what it would have looked like in the time of Abraham. Is the ziggurat dedicated to Nana there? That would look like that. that that's the modern, that's what it looks like today. <clears throat> so, what we have here is we have Mesopotamia, the most powerful nation on earth, and we have Nana, the moon goddess, as their primary god, whose temple is in Ur, where our story starts today. It's where Abraham was born, it's where he lived, he very, it's where his father lived. He would have been very, very familiar with Nana worship. So in the ancient world, um, there so we'll, we lock those things in. But another thing that we need to realize about the ancient world is that in the ancient world, there was not a lot of debate about whether or not each nation's gods existed. If you lived in Ur, you served Nana, but that didn't mean you didn't believe that Chemosh existed in Canaan. 
There wasn't a debate about that. Of course he did there, and Nana is here. That wasn't the area of debate, because, uh, because what the ancients believed is that in the same way nations control territories, so do gods. Right? So, <clears throat> so even ancient warfare is shaped by that understanding. If I'm Babylonian, and I am taking territory for Babylon, I am also taking t- territory for Ishtar, the god of Babylon. I fight on behalf of my nation, but my nation is also fighting on behalf of my god. And as we expand our territory, we are also expanding the territory of influence of the god that we serve. And so, that, so, so it created kind of this, this, this divine, this, this uh, otherworldly kind of significance to even the wars we fought against each other. In the ancient world, we've said it before here at Harbor Life as well, ancient gods are tied to locations. Zeus lives on Olympus. That's his territory, right? Ra lives around the Nile. That's his territory. Baal, Baal, lives on Mount Carmel. That's his territory, right? Nana lives in Mesopotamia, in Ur. Meaning then, if you leave Mesopotamia, you are leaving the protection of Nana in this story. So we go back to our map. I'm making Chuck work today. Ur is the biggest city in Mesopotamia at the time. It's also right at the southern border of the nation. Anyone want to guess where the northern border of Mesopotamia was? Haran, right? Haran is the northern border of Mesopotamia at that particular time. So when Abraham and Terah set out, they walked the, the, the south to north distance of the nation of Mesopotamia. The first 600 of miles of their journey still stays within Nana's territory until they get to Haran. And it's at this point there's a decision to be made. Do you take another step out of the protection of the comfortable, out of the known, out of the familiar, into the unknown? That's the decision they're facing here. When Terah, Abraham's father, gets there, his answer is no. He says, I'll leave Ur, but I can't leave Mesopotamia. I can't leave Nana. I can't leave what I've always known. So why is Abraham praised throughout Scripture? I think it's because he's facing the same dilemma his father is, perhaps even with an added layer of intensity. In verse 28 of chapter 11, the Bible tells us that Sarai, who becomes Sarah, Abraham's wife, is barren. She can't have kids. Now, we've already talked about it. Who's in charge of giving you kids? Nana is, right? Meaning, if you leave, you're not, only, you're, not only are you not going to have the possibility of her blessing, you may actually face her wrath. And so we see here that Yahweh God calls out to Abraham making, and makes him a promise. Go, leave, come to where I'm calling you, and I, not Nana, will turn you into a great nation. So let's see if we can put ourselves in Abraham's shoes for just a minute. Imagine standing on the border of Mesopotamia, the border of Nana's territory, 600 miles from the city that you've grown up, with, grown up in, on the edge of the only culture you've ever known. Sure, it was hard to leave the city, but at least you were in a culture you understood, at least you were in a nation you understood, at least you were under the protection of a God you understood, but now you're standing on an edge, and one more step beyond that is entirely unknown. 
You've lived in the space of, but he's faced with, the, with another internal dilemma as well. You've lived in that space in the culture you've known, wishing for children, but Nana's given you none. And so you know that Abraham and Sarah, we know that actually from later on in Scripture as well, were longing for children. They were longing for something greater. And so they have to wrestle with that as well. Nana hasn't provided, but I have no idea. We have a promise from this other God, and yet there's all this unknown facing us there. At the same time, your father has just decided to stay. Now, Abraham and Sarah have not been able to have kids, but they have had a good life. This is not a poor, wandering family. Abraham is wealthy. We know that from later on in the scripture. The name Sarai actually means queen or princess, meaning she probably came from some kind of significant family. So for Abraham and Sarah, sure, they don't have kids, but Mesopotamia has been good to them in many other ways. And so as Abraham stands on the edge of the border of Mesopotamia, do you step out of your relative comfort into unknown spaces, facing unknown pains and unknown struggles? The big question that he has to ask is, is the sacrifice worth the payoff? For this whole year, we focused on taking the next steps in our faith. And every single step that we take towards God is a good step. The journey of Terah and Abram mirrors our own discipleship journey in so many ways. Let's give Terah credit where he deserves credit. There's bravery in taking that very, very first step. Leaving Ur. The city that they grew up in, the city that they've known their entire life, stepping outside of that, especially in the ancient world. Sometimes I think it's hard for us. To, I think we can relate to it a little bit. Moving to a new city is scary for us. But we can get there relatively quickly, which means we can also get back relatively quickly. There's a fear there, but it's different than it was in the ancient world where you're leaving everything behind and it's a long way and it takes a long time to get back. Let's give Tara credit for that. Taking that first step is hard. And that's true for many of us in our faith lives too. And so we want to give credit in that space. Taking that first step into a church or the first step to even exploring whether God's real or not is a big deal. Something we should honor, we should praise. It's a big step. If you're here this morning and you've taken that step, I want to commend you. Well done. There's many people that don't even take that step. If you're standing at the city limits of Ur, wondering the same thing Abram and, and Haran are, is in, if you, sorry, if you're standing on the city limits of Ur, that first step into your faith, wondering the same thing Abram is in Haran, we'd love to come alongside of you and start that journey with you. There are some of you who are still getting ready to take that first step or just have taken that first step, and that's commendable. Some of you, have already taken that step, first step out of Ur, or maybe, maybe even walked the first 600 miles in the tension of the unsettledness, uh, of that unsettledness and the unknown, while still having the relative comfort of Mesopotamia. In other words, what I mean then is that, we, that we've genuinely taken, there's some of us here that have genuinely taken steps out of our comfort areas, walking in the direction that God's been leading us. And we've experienced God in that journey, which is fantastic too. If you're in that space taking those steps, we want to come along and walk, walk alongside of you as well. 
that maybe we haven't been able to leave the whole thing behind, but we're still taking steps towards God in that way. Some of us have left Ur. We've walked the walk between the known and the unknown, and now there are some of us who are standing, like Abraham did, on the border of Haran. Wondering if we're ready to take the next step in our faith life. Wondering if we can really leave behind what we've always known. Asking yourselves, am I willing to step into spaces I'm unfamiliar with, where I'll inevitably face pain? Because this is the crux of our story. It's the crux of our faith life, actually. The question that we ask ourselves in this space is, do I trust the promises of God are worth it? It's a hard question to answer. If you answer it quickly or flippantly, you'll say, maybe you'll say, yes, of course I think that. But when, actually, when push actually comes to shove, it's a much, much more difficult question. Do I trust the promises of God are worth it, worth the pain of the journey? Because our faith lives aren't easy. Is it worth the discomfort of having to wrestle with things that maybe I could ignore otherwise? Is it worth the fear because I've got to go into places I don't get or understand? Is it, work the, is it worth the work that it will take to actually move into the kind of flourishing life that God asks for? We know that Abraham still has 400 miles of journey left. That's hard work. See, I think it's the question that we all face daily. And I think it's one of the hardest ones we ever have to answer. But also arguably one of the most important ones we have to answer. How we answer this question of do we trust where God is leading is worth the pain shapes the entirety of our faith life. And one of the best ways for me to wrap my head around my faith life is to compare it to my physical one. And I apologize for those of you because I've been on a kick with this lately and so I've shared it with a lot of you often, but I'm going to do it again for those of you who haven't heard it. If I, want my, if I want to be physically healthy, if I want my body to function at peak performance, there are things that I need to do. And, and, and any of you who have walked this journey along with me know that if you're going to try to become healthier, it requires pain, doesn't it? In a lot of different factions. I need to control the things I eat. I just can't eat and drink whatever I want. Otherwise, I won't function at my physical peak. And that can be painful. I can't have that extra piece of chocolate or extra piece of cake or eat all the fried food in the world, even though it's delicious. So there's pain that's involved with that. I also need to control my exercise, which Michael reminds me of all the time. Thanks. And also not thanks. We have to get on the bike. I have to ride the rides. I have to walk, the, I have to walk outside. I have to do things physically. And anybody who's ever exercised know, exercises know that that's not pleasant all the time. I also know it means that I need to say no to things that are easy and intentionally step into things that are hard. If I want to be physically as healthy as I can be, I need to do all of those different things. And anybody who's been on that journey knows that. It's a constant calculation, whether or not we're aware of it. We're asking the question, is not eating that extra bowl of ice cream worth the health benefits? Some days I say, no, it's not. Because <laughs> I like ice cream. It's delicious, right? Is the pain of the miles on the bike work the physical benefits I'll receive? I can know it, but do I believe it? Some days, no, unfortunately. 
I know the facts, I know the science, I know that the extra mile on the bike is good for me in so many ways, and yet, ugh, you can relate with that, I'm sure. If I don't believe the health benefits are worth the sacrifice, I will not do them. None of us would put ourselves through the pain of working out if we didn't think there was a benefit to that pain. We all know it's true. That's why it's hard for us even when we do know the benefits of the, those particular things. But that same concept is true in our faith lives. God promises Abram a big promise. He says, go and I'll make you into a great nation. But that will mean pain. It's going to mean you're going to have to leave what you know, what you've relied on. You're going to have to leave Nana. And actually, interestingly enough, Nana's already shown you her, ability to offer, to, her inability to offer what I'm offering you, but, it's, but she's also comfortable. And so do you take that step? Do you trust that the promise is worth it? As Luigi shared in his story earlier, God's promised us a flourishing life. Jesus said, I've come so that you may have life and life to the full. That's the promise of the gospel, this flourishing kind of life. Even, even Luigi, it's not about going through the motions. It's not about just coming to church or reading the right scriptures. He said, he said often in his story, he says, two weeks at the row where my, my sermon's been set up nicely by Next Step Stories, is that in those spaces, right, they, those, that's not the flourishing. He, he recognized I'm still not in the flourishing, which took work and disciplines that were different than just those things. God's promised us a the promise of the gospel is that flourishing life, but it will mean pain. You're going to need to leave what you've known, what you've relied on. You're going to need to leave nana, or maybe it's power, or greed, or lust, or comfort, or ease, whatever it might be. Now what's interesting, though, is that we're in the same position that Abraham, Abram was. Nana was supposed to offer the life, or especially the life of a child. That was supposed to be her deal. She's already not done it. I would argue for many of us, there are things the world's offered us that we've already seen that its inability to deliver on. Actually, Luigi's story is perfect for that too, right? The world's offered me up these particular things, and we've seen that it doesn't give fulfillment. We know that. But they're also known and comfortable, right? And so the big question that we face is the same as Abram's. Do we take, we stand on the edge of Haran with the promises of God into this flourishing life, but also the promise of having to take on more pain. There's 400 miles of the journey left. We know that the thing that we've, we're leaving behind has not offered everything that it promised, and yet we also know that it hasn't been the worst thing in the world either. And maybe, uh, clearly, there are times where maybe what you're in right now is the worst thing and maybe that makes the step actually easier in some ways. But for many of us, we're in this comfortable space where we realize that there are things that are going to be, hard, they're going to be painful to leave behind. And is it worth it to step into the promise of the unknown? It's a fundamental question of our faith lives. Do I take a step out of what I've known into what I don't know? It promises to help me be, live into a more flourishing kind of life, but it will also have pain associated with it. It can play itself out in so many different ways. Maybe you know there's something wrong in, in, in the way that your marriage is working right now. Maybe it's not completely falling apart, but you know that something's not clicking. You're standing on the edge, and maybe the next step is to say, hey, maybe we should bring in a counselor. 
somebody else to help us think about it. Oh, but that's going to mean you have to deal with stuff you haven't want to thought about, think about in a while, right? The promise is to, into more flourishing space, but it also means I'm going to have to wrestle with some of the junk I have, I've been just trying to squish down. Or maybe you're standing on the edge of, uh, uh, of realizing that there are certain habits that you have in your life that aren't good for you. And stepping out will, will mean that you're going to have to give up some of the comfort that you know you've had for so long. That you're going to have to maybe tell somebody else about it because you know you can't walk, about it, walk out of that alone. You know it hasn't been good for you. You know it's holding you back. But to step out of it is terrifying, right? There's a variety of different examples we could use in this particular space where God has said there's a flourishing life available for you because you matter because you're valuable. And so step towards me in it, even if that means pain. Our challenge this week for all of us is asking ourselves that question, do we believe the promises of God are worth the unknown pain that we're going to experience? Now we mentioned it at the beginning of the service. Stepping into those places is terrifying. If you haven't ever done it before, if you've done it in one way or another, you are, if you've done it already, you know it. If you haven't, the, un that un the unknown of what that unknown looks like is scary. But that's why we gather in this space. It was actually one of the, it's, it, it's, it was great um, uh, at men's group this past Thursday. By the way, there's men's group every Thursday. If you're a, if you're a man, I guess if you're a woman, you could, it would make men's group weird, but I guess you can come if you want to. I don't know. I don't want to be exclusive, but there's women's groups too, so that works. Um, but, uh, but in that space, we, we, we did a little bit of this with each other, where we challenged each other. We, we pointed out different areas in which that'd be. I, I actually made fun of Micah earlier, um, but I also appreciate him. I, I have a love-hate relationship with Micah on this one right now. Yeah. So he'll, he'll, he tracks my workouts, um, <laughs> which is the love-hate, right? And I'll get, an email, I'll get a text from him going, hey, zero is not very good. And I'll be like, son of a gun. You're right. Um, and so on the one hand, I, I, don't, I don't like that. On the other hand, uh, it's really motivating, right? We, we come to this space so that we can care for each other in that. Uh, Tom has called, we go out to breakfast regularly and has said to me before in a very loving, caring way, hey man, have you thought about this? We can do a little better tomorrow. I couldn't do the things I do without people in my life who encouraged me to do a little bit better tomorrow than I did today. We come into this space so we can do that with each other. That's what we're here for. We stand on the edge of Haran, realizing that to step into God's promises causes us a lot of pain. But I had a good friend of mine recently say to me that, when I, that in those spaces, when I, don't, when I have something I really, really don't want to do, she said, I step into it because I often find that it makes me a better person. That step is scary. Step into it with us together, and hopefully we'll experience those same things. The promise of Scripture is that if we do, we experience a life we wouldn't experience otherwise. So will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that, uh, that whatever, we, we, whatever fear we're facing, whatever unknown thing we're standing on the precipice of, that you give us the wisdom to see it and then the courage to step out into it. It's terrifying stepping into the unknown. To step into spaces we don't know what will happen or, or how we might have to grow or change or the pain we might experience. 
So we pray that you, that, we, that you give us the ability to come alongside of each other and encourage each other into that space. To take whatever next step you have for us, whether it's leaving her, to take the first step towards you, whether it's the first step towards walking to her on in the first place where we're in between leaving what we know and what we don't know, or that terrifying step of stepping out into the full unknown. God, may we all experience the abundant life that you've promised in the midst of all of that. Amen.